Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everyone. There are different ways of loving others, but one way is best. We'll look at that in a moment. But first, my newest book is now available for pre-order. The title is Whatever Happens, How to Stand Firm in Your Faith When the World is Falling Apart. This is a 31-unit or chapter study of the book of Philippians, which is a book in the Bible that I've been poring over for about half a century. I'm going to give you some of the chapter titles. Whatever happens, trust God's guidance when perplexed. Whatever happens, rely on revitalizing grace. Whatever happens, be as cheerful as possible. Whatever happens, learn the techniques of spiritual self-defense. Whatever happens, improve your mental chemistry. Those are some of the chapters, and if you pre-order now, you'll also receive preaching and teaching notes to help you present Philippians to others, and some special 59-second sermons from Philippians, along with inspirational cell phone graphics and a sneak peek inside the book. To pre-order, just go to robertjmorgan.com slash whatever happens. I'll repeat that at the end, but I'll repeat it now just in case you're writing it down. robertjmorgan.com slash whatever happens. Now, let's jump right into our passage today as we continue our study of 1 John. We're coming to chapter 4, verse 7 and following. And if you have your Bible, you may want to follow along and look at how we progress through the logic that is embedded in this passage. 1 John, chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. He goes on to say, beginning in the middle part of verse 16, again, God is love. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is him. This is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Wow, what a passage that is about love. And this is what people have been talking about for many, many years. One of the best books about this is one by C.S. Lewis written three years before he died. It was written about 1960, and the book is called The Four Loves. It's based on a series of talks that Lewis had given over the radio. He pointed out something that has since been repeated many times, but it still bears remembering. There are four primary Greek words for love. This is important for us because the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. The first word is storge. This is the kind of natural affection that people in a family normally feel for each other. It is being fond of someone because you're familiar with them. A good English synonym is affection. The second word is philia. This is friendship love, and it's easy to remember because the city of Philadelphia is named for this word and is supposedly the, brother, the city of brotherly love. This is the kind of love that you have for your friends and acquaintances. This is friendship love. The third word is eros. The Greeks named one of their gods by this title, the god of love and sex. The idea is physical pleasure. We get our English word erotic out of this. Eros and erotic can have negative connotations, but this is also a word that may be used to describe the healthy physical love and pleasure that should exist between a husband and a wife. And then the fourth way, the, the fourth word that describes the fourth way that we love is agape. And this is the kind of selfless love that only God possesses. It is very unique, very divine, and he possesses it alone, except for he shares it with his children. It's the kind of selfless love that puts other people first, considers their needs, and seeks to meet those needs even at its own expense. It's the exact opposite of our human natures. C.S. Lewis and many others have pointed out that all four of these loves are necessary for a good marriage. A husband and wife need storge, or natural affection. They need the friendship love of Philio, and they should be each other's best friends. They need eros, or intimacy, and they need agape, the willingness to constantly put the other before oneself. Well, here in the book of 1 John, and especially in this particular paragraph, the Apostle John, who we call the Apostle of Love, is doing everything in his power to instill large doses of agape love among his church members. To use today's terminology, he is telling them that the agape love is the secret sauce of the church on this world. And when I say church, 
That includes Christian marriages and all of the relationships that we, as children of God and as followers of Christ, have with one another. We all need massive doses of agape love. This passage is one of the best descriptions of this remarkable attitude we have in the Bible and in all of theological literature. So I want to articulate what John is saying in just a simple of statements that I think serve as summaries. First of all, he writes something very controversial. He tells us that only those, only those who have been born again can experience and convey the true love of agape. In verse 7, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love agape comes from God. Everyone who loves with agape love has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love with agape love does not know God because God is agape. Now, there are many other emotions that can look like agape. I've already talked about affection. We have friendship. We have compassion. We have altruism. We have physical attraction. And many times we use love for any and all of those things. Many people can experience and convey those kinds of love. In fact, all three of the other kinds of love can be shared by anybody. When you see, for example, a happily married couple who never go to church or read the Bible or follow Christ, and they have a good marriage, they have apparently mastered storge, philia, and eros. But they simply don't know anything about agape love because that comes only from God. That's why it's such a shame when those of us who do know Christ don't display agape to the world. Only those of us who have been born again can possibly be channels of this kind of love on this planet. The second thing we notice here in the passage is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration of this love. Look at verse 9. This is how God showed his agape love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is agape. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says that twice, you'll notice. He says it, then he repeats it the way that God showed or demonstrated his love among us was by sending his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins that we might have eternal life through the sacrifice that he made for us out of love. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16 famously says, for God so loved the world that he sent his, his one and only son. This is from both the Gospel of John, the Epistle of uh, Romans, and this book of 1 John. We are told here that the sending of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example that is conceivable for human beings of the love, the agape of God. And when we realize this, it touches us very deeply. Wycliffe Bible Translator, uh, Translators posted a story on social media about a 69-year-old woman named Enol who spoke four languages and she had read the Bible, but the Bible was not available in her original tribal language. When Wycliffe translated the scriptures into that language, 
she picked up a book in her own original language and read for the first time with words that she'd known from infancy, John 3.16. And that verse suddenly became very personal and poignant to her. She had read the verse in English. But she said, when I read John 3.16 in my own language, I realized this was what God did for me. He did this for me. He gave his only son for me. She said, this is a very memorable moment for me and one thing that I will never forget for the rest of my life. I wish that we all had a sense of reading this truth about the giving of Jesus Christ in love that we read about in John 3.16 and in 1 John chapter 4. I wish that we all had the sense of reading it and understanding it as though we had never seen it before and, oh, that it would grip us in a way that would change our whole attitude. And that brings us to the third principle here that Paul give, uh, or that John the Apostle gives in verses 11 and 12. We have an obligation then to personify God's love. We have an obligation to be a channel through which this remarkable, self-giving, selfless, other-centered love will flow through us. He says in verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us with agape love, we ought also to love one another with the same kind of love. No one has ever seen God, he says, but if we love one another, God is living in us. His love is made complete in us. He is channeling us. He is living within us and loving others through us. Now, the Apostle John is, is very interested in the whole concept of the invisibility of God the Father. He made several references to it in the gospel. In the prologue of his gospel, John wrote, this is John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. In John 5, 37, Jesus said to the critics and the Father who sent me testified concerning me, you have never heard his voice or seen his form. And then in John chapter 6, verse 46, John wrote, No one has ever seen the Father except the one who is from the Father, only he who has seen the Father. And now here in 1 John 4.12, John wrote, No one has ever seen God. But his point in saying that is that because of agape love, other people can see something about God. They can see the personality and the evidence of God by the love that they see in us, his people, the love that they see in you. When you love others with an agape love, it is the expression or manifestation of the God who lives within you. Other people can't see it, but that love testifies of him. Now, there's a fourth thing here as well. It says, and this is a wonderful verb, we can rely on God's love. Look at verses 13 and following. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. His given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in him, and so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. This paragraph again brings up the subject that we see all the way through the Gospel of John, and particularly the epistle of 1 John, 
about our salvation and the assurance we can have concerning it. Remember, again, the background of the letter that we've talked about in earlier episodes. There were a lot of people, a host of people, who had rejected John's teaching about the person of Jesus Christ, and they have left the churches that he was the bishop over. They had ridiculed him, and they had ridiculed those who had remained true, telling them that they were foolish and mistaken and wrong. And so John had had an exodus of people who had left his church apparently because of the high Christology that he presented in his gospel. But John said here, God sent Jesus Christ as the ultimate expression of his love for you, and the Holy Spirit shows you the truth and illumines it in your heart and reassures you that you are God's child. It doesn't matter what the critics say. It doesn't matter what the deserters and the successionists say. If you have the Holy Spirit and the love of God within you, then you are his child. You can have assurance about that. And then in verse 14, he reaffirmed the message. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, which is a unique phrase in the Scripture. In other words, you have my objective eyewitness testimony, John said. We have seen and we testify And you also have the Holy Spirit's internal reassurance. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. You have our testimony, but also you have the Holy Spirit within you. And this gives you assurance of salvation, regardless of what these deserters were saying. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't be rattled. Just be channels of His love. In verse 15, John repeated his great thesis again. He said, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they live in God. There is no might or maybe or should or could or if or but about it. If you acknowledge that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, then God lives in you and you live in him. And that brings us to that wonderful verb, and we know and rely on the word that the love that God has for us. The word rely is a word that we don't often use as much, say, as we do believe or to have faith in, but it's a great biblical word. It means to depend on confidently. When you rely on God's love, you realize that you don't need to fret or fear or worry or anguish. You can just go through life resting in His love, which will always do what's best on your behalf. In her book about spiritual disciplines, Jan Johnson wrote, Before going to sleep, review your day and confess thoughts and deeds that were not motivated by love, but don't drift off to sleep until you have rested yourself in His love. When you are resting and relying on God's love, you are relying on His grace that provides all you need, His mercy that forgives your failure and works with you to correct your weaknesses, His presence that never leaves you for a single second, His wisdom that ordains your steps, His Word that speaks to every need you have, His infinite longevity, which guarantees the eternal life that we have in Christ. In his book on devotions, Alan Fading said that at a certain moment in his life, he struggled to believe that God loved him. In fact, he said he had had a number of those moments through life. 
He said, I imagine that I've done something or failed to do something that had diminished God's care for me. And he said, instead of letting God's love displace my anxiety and fear, he said, I'll let fear displace my confidence in God's love. But he said that he had learned to pray, Father, may your spirit enable me to be more deeply immersed in the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of your love for me. Help me to know your love even when I can't fully comprehend it. Open my eyes to see your loving countenance. Open my ears to hear your words of affirmation. Alan Fading went on to say, And when I stopped to listen, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying, My son, I enjoy you because I made you. You belong to me and I care for you. The Son has opened the way for us to enjoy unbroken fellowship, so make yourself at home in my love today. Rest in my love and then share my love with others who will cross your path. This is how you can have confidence of my presence in you and my love for you. Well, that's exactly what John is saying. Now, here's a fifth thing that we can extrapolate out of this passage. John goes on to imply that as we are Christ-like people, we are embodying God's love. That is what makes us Christ-like. Look at the last part of verse 16 and following. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in, in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Now look at this sentence at the very end of verse 17. In this world, we are like Jesus. In this world, we are like Jesus. Verse 18 goes on, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, the first three words of this section are a little shocking. God is love. This is twice, actually, in this passage that we have seen that, here and in verse 8, which says, Whoever does not Love does not know God because God is love. What does it mean that God is love? When we study the entirety of Scripture, we can say that it's wrong to insist that God is nothing except love. It's not that this attitude of love expresses the totality of the essence of God. What John is saying is that God's nature is a loving nature. He possesses true love and he expresses true love, and he imparts true love. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said that God is spirit. In 1 John 1, 5, John said that God is light. Now he claims that God is love. John is simply giving us some of the infinite and wondrous attributes of our wonderful God. When John says that God is love, he is not neglecting God's other attributes. He is simply saying that the essence of the nature of God from before the beginning of the world, his limitless attributes and his infinite nature includes the boundless capacity to love and to love everything and to love everyone and to love you. It comes to him naturally. He loves because he loves. He is loving because he is loving. He always has been and he always will be. And in that way, to that infinite extent, he loves you and me. This means that when we abide in his love, we are becoming loving people and we are becoming Christ-like. In this world, we are like Jesus. Finally, 
He says, we have no assurance of salvation if we do not transmit God's love. Look at verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. If you do not love others with this kind of love, then you don't have a connection with God because he alone is the source of it. And if you are in a relationship with him, it is flowing into you. And if you aren't, it is not. As I was researching the sermon, I came across the story of a POW camp built to hold Nazi prisoners during World War II. And you know where it was built? In the little town of Aliceville, Alabama, population 1,400. It was a town like the fictional Mayberry. The government built a POW camp there that would hold 6,000 German prisoners. The town only had 1,400 people, but the camp was built to hold 6,000 German soldiers that had been captured as POWs. As you can imagine, the townspeople were bewildered by this invasion of Nazi prisoners into their community. They knew how brutal and evil these men were, and they were told that the ones being sent to Aliceville would be among the worst. On the day when the first POWs were due to arrive by train, the local policemen told the officers to stay in their homes. No one was allowed in the street, but no one paid any attention to them, and the whole town turned out to watch these monsters get off the train. What they saw instead were hundreds of frightened, beaten down, defeated boys. Just boys, many of them scared, some scarred, disfigured, seriously injured, some like their own boys. An attitude went through the town that no one had expected. It was compassion. The guard at the Aliceville POW camp followed the Geneva Conventions to the letter and treated the prisoners with respect. And one writer said, neither the officers running the camp nor the people in the surrounding town were following just the letter of the law alone, that is, to the G Geneva Conventions. Rather, they started to follow the true spirit of the Geneva Conventions and were treating these enemy soldiers the same way they would want their own sons and brothers to be treated when they were captured in war. When the soldiers first arrived at the camp, they found fresh linens and shaving equipment waiting for them on their bunks. In short order, they were introduced to the twin American delicacies of peanut butter and sliced white bread. They were given so much ham and so much corn to eat, they couldn't finish it all. Within a year, the prisoners had three different orchestras up and running using instruments donated by the local community. They opened a school where soldiers could learn anything from pottery to mathematics to almost any language you can imagine. They set up correspondence programs with local universities where they could earn college credits. These prisoners had soccer games just about every day. They had a newspaper. They had poetry readings and theatrical productions. In other words, life was good for POWs in Camp Aliceville. According to one German soldier, they arrived in Aliceville expecting hell, but instead they were greeted by heaven. In explaining it, 
someone said, we love our enemies not because of who they are, but because of who we are. One of the prisoners later said that he thought he was coming to America to be killed. They thought they would be tortured. At Aliceville, he was treated with such respect that he said, if this is how America treated its enemy, then America is where I want to live. And in 1956, he did return to America with only $4 in his pocket, and a local church helped him to establish his life there. In the years that followed, the town of Aliceville had several friendship days when the former POWs would return and everyone would celebrate together the power of love and friendship they had unexpectedly discovered in the middle of a terrible war. I have to believe that some of the people of Aliceville were Christians and godly church members, and I believe that some of them had read the Gospel of John and the book of 1 John, and they knew something about agape. Only those who are born again can convey God's love. Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration of this love. We all have an obligation to personify that love. We can always rely on God's love for us. And when we embody that love, we are growing more Christ-like. On the other hand, we have no assurance of salvation if we don't transmit God's love to others. It seems to me that that is the significance of this particular paragraph, and we can sum everything up by saying the more we understand of the ocean of God's love for us, the more the tide of love will arise in our hearts for others, and not just storge love or phileta love or eros love, but the ultimate love of all, the love that transforms, and it's the agape love of God. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me today. Please share this podcast with others. And remember to pre-order my newest book, Whatever Happens. You can pre-order it by going to robertjmorgan.com slash whatever happens. robertjmorgan.com slash whatever happens. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media and sponsored by MP Seminars, which for three decades has been training pastors, scholars, and Bible students in the use of Logos biblical software. Audio engineering and production is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website, robertjmorgan.com. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.